Section 15 of the Satyricon. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Scythram. The Satyricon by Gaius Petronius Arbiter. Translated by W.C. Firebaugh. Section 15. Inculpius Giton and Eumolpus escaped by sea. Chapter the 111th. There was a certain married lady at Ephesus, once upon a time, so noted for her chastity that she even drew women from the neighboring states to come to gaze upon her. When she carried out her husband, she was by no means content to comply with the conventional custom, and followed the funeral cortege with her hair down, beating her naked breast inside of the onlookers. She followed the corpse even into the tomb, and when the body had been placed in the vault, in accordance with the Greek custom, she began to stand vigil over it, weeping day and night. Neither parents nor relations could divert her from punishing herself in this manner, and from bringing on death by starvation. The magistrates, the last resort, were rebuffed and went away, and the lady, mourned by all as an unusual example, dragged her through the fifth day without nourishment. A most faithful maid was in attendance upon the poor woman, she either wept in company with the afflicted one, or replenished the lamp which was placed in the vault, as the occasion required. Throughout the whole city there was but one opinion. Men of every calling agreed that here shone the one solitary example of chastity and of love. In the meantime, the governor of the province had ordered some robbers crucified near the little vault in which the lady was bewailing her recent loss. On the following night, a soldier who was standing guard over the crosses for fear someone might drag down one of the bodies for burial, saw a light shining brightly among the tombs, and heard the sobs of someone grieving. A weakness common to mankind made him curious to know who was there and what was going on, so he descended into the tomb, and, catching sight of a most beautiful woman, he stood still, afraid at first that it was some apparition or spirit from the infernal regions. But he finally comprehended the true state of affairs as his eye took in the corpse lying there, and as he noted the tears in the face lacerated by the fingernails, he understood that the lady was unable to endure the loss of the dear departed. He then brought his own scanty ration into the vault, and exhorted the sobbing mourner not to persevere in useless grief, or to rend her bosom with unavailing sobs. The same end awaited us all, the same last resting place, and other platitudes by which anguished minds are recalled to sanity. But oblivious to sympathy, she beat and lacerated her bosom more vehemently than before, and, tearing out her hair, she strewed it upon the breast of the corpse. Notwithstanding this, the soldier would not leave off, but persisted in exhorting the unfortunate lady to eat, until the maid, seduced by the smell of wine, I suppose, was herself overcome and stretched out her hand to receive the bounty of their host. Refreshed by food and drink, she began to attack the obstinacy of her mistress. "'What good will it do you to die of hunger?' she asked or to bury yourself alive, or to surrender an uncondemned spirit before the fates demand it? Think you the ashes of the sepultured dead can fill aught of thy woe? Would you recall the dead from their reluctant fates? Why not shake off this womanish weakness and enjoy the blessings of light while you can? The very corpse lying there ought to convince you that it is your duty to live. When pressed to eat or to live, no one listens unwillingly, and the lady, thirsty after an abstinence of several days, finally permitted her obstinacy to be overcome, nor did she take her fill of nourishment with the less avidity than had the maid who had surrendered first. Chapter the 112th But to make a long story short, you know the temptations that beset a full stomach. The soldier laid siege to her virtue with the self-same blandishments by which he had persuaded her that she ought to live. Nor to her modest eye did the young man seem uncouth or wanting in address. 
the maid pled in his behalf and kept repeating why will you fight with a passion that to you is pleasure remembering not in whose lands you are taking your leisure but why should i keep you longer in suspense the lady observed the same abstinence when it came to this part of her body and the victorious soldier won both of his objectives so they lay together not only that night in which they pledged their vows but also the next and even into the third shutting the doors of the vault of course so that any one acquaintance or stranger coming to the tomb would be convinced that this most virtuous of wives had expired upon the body of her husband as for the soldier so delighted was he with the beauty of his mistress and the secrecy of the intrigue that he purchased all the delicacies his pay permitted and smuggled them into the vault as soon as the darkness fell meanwhile the parents of one of the crucified criminals observing the laxness of the watch dragged the hanging corpse down at night and performed the last rite the soldier was hoodwinked while absent from his post of duty and when on the following day he caught sight of one of the crosses without its corpse he was in terror of punishment and explained to the lady what had taken place he would await no sentence of court-martial but would punish his neglect of duty with his own sword let her prepare a place for one about to die let that fatal vault serve both the lover and the husband not that cried the lady no less merciful than chaste the gods forbid that i should look out at the same time upon the corpses of the two men dearest to me i would rather hang the dead than slay the living so saying she gave orders for the body of her husband to be lifted out of the coffin and fastened upon the vacant cross the soldier availed himself of the expedient suggested by this very ingenious lady and next day every one wondered how a dead man had found his way to the cross chapter the one hundred and thirteenth the sailors received this tale with roars of laughter, and Thrupina blushed not a little and laid her face amorously upon Giton's neck. But Lucas did not laugh. If that governor had been a just man, said he, shaking his head angrily, he would have ordered the husband's body taken down and carried back into the vault and crucified the woman. No doubt the memory of Hadile haunted his mind in the looting of his ship in that wanton excursion, but the terms of the treaty permitted the harboring of no old grudges, and the joy which filled our hearts left no room for anger. Trupina was lying in Giton's lap by this time, covering his bosom with kisses one minute, and rearranging the curls on his shaven head the next. Uneasy and chagrined at this new league, I took neither food nor drink, but looked askance at them both, with grim eyes. Every kiss was a wound to me, every artful blandishment, which the wanton woman employed, and I could not make up my mind as to whether I was more angered at the boy for having supplanted me with my mistress, or at my mistress for debauching the boy. Both were hateful to my sight, and more galling than my late servitude, and to make the matter all the more aggravating, Trupina would not even greet me as an acquaintance, whom she had formerly received as a lover, while Giton did not think me worthy of a here's to you in ordinary civility, nor even speak to me in the course of the common conversation. I supposed he was afraid of reopening a tender scar at the moment when a return to her good graces had commenced to draw it together. Tears of vexation dropped upon my breast, and the groan I smothered in a sigh nearly racked my soul. The vulture tearing at the liver's deep and vital parts that racks our breasts, and rends our very heart-strings, is not that bird the charming poet sings with all his arts, tis jealousy or hate that human hearts stings. In spite of my ill-humour, Lucas saw how well my golden curls became me, and, becoming enamoured anew, began winking his wanton eyes at me, and sought admission to my good graces upon a footing of pleasure. Nor did he put on the arrogance of a master, but spoke as a friend asking a favour. Long and ardently he tried to gain his ends, but all in vain, till at last, meeting with a decisive repulse, 
His passion turned to fury, and he tried to carry the place by storm, but Trupina came in unexpectedly and caught him in his wanton attempt, whereupon he was greatly upset and hastily adjusted his clothing and bolted out of the cabin. Trupina was fired with lust at the sight. What was Lucas up to? she demanded. What was he after in that ardent assault? She compelled me to explain, burned still more hotly at what she heard, and recalling memories of our past familiarities, she desired me to renew our old amour, but I was worn out with so much venery and slighted her advances. She was burning up with desire by this time, and threw her arms around me in a frenzied embrace, hugging me so tightly that I uttered an involuntary cry of pain. One of her maids rushed in at this end, thinking I was attempting to force from her mistress the very favor which I had refused her. She sprang at us and tore us apart. Thoroughly enraged at the disappointment of a lecher's passion, Trupina upbraided me violently, and with many threats she hurried out to find Lucas for the purpose of exasperating him further against me, and of joining forces with him to be revenged upon me. Now you must know that I had formerly held a very high place in this waiting maid's esteem, while I was prosecuting my intrigue with her mistress, and for that reason she took it very hard when she surprised me with Trupina and sobbed very bitterly. I pressed her earnestly to tell me the reason for her sobs, and after pretending to be reluctant, she broke out. You will think no more of her than of a common prostitute if you have a drop of decent blood in your veins. You will not result to that female catamite if you are a man. This disturbed my mind, but... What exercised me most was the fear that Eumolpus would find out what was going on and, being a very sarcastic individual, might revenge my supposed injury in some poetic lampoon, in which event his ardent zeal would without doubt expose me to ridicule, and I greatly dreaded that. But while I was debating with myself as to the best means of preventing him from getting at the facts, who should suddenly come in but the man himself, and he was not uninformed as to what had taken place, for Trupina had related all of the particulars to Giton, and had tried to indemnify herself for my repulse at the expense of my little friend eumolpus was furiously angry because of all of this and all the more so lascivious advances were in open violation of the treaty which had been signed the minute the old fellow laid eyes upon me he began bewailing my lot and ordered me to tell him exactly what had happened as he was already well informed i told him frankly of lucas lecherous attempt and of trupina's wanton assault when he had heard all the facts eumolpus swore roundly that he would certainly avenge us as the gods were just and would not suffer so many villainies to go unpunished chapter the one hundred and fourteenth we were still discussing this and other matters when the sea grew rough and clouds gathering from every quarter obscured with darkness the light of day the panic-stricken sailors ran to their stations and took in sail before the squall was upon them but the gale did not drive the waves in any one direction and the helmsman lost his bearings and did not know what course to steer at one moment the wind would set towards sicily but the next the north wind prevailing on the italian coast would drive the unlucky vessel hither and yon, and, what was more dangerous than all the rain squalls, a pall of such black density blotted out the light that the helmsman could not even see as far forward as the bow. At last, as the savage fury of the sea grew more malignant, the trembling Lucas stretched out his hands to me imploringly. "'Save us from destruction, Encolpius!' he shouted. "'Restore that sacred robe and holy rattle to the ship!' 
Be merciful for heaven's sake, just as you used to be. He was still shouting when a wind squall swept him into the sea. The raging elements whirled him around and around in a terrible maelstrom and sucked him down. Trupina, on the other hand, was seized by her faithful servants, placed in a skiff, along with the greater part of her belongings, and saved from certain death. Embracing Giton, I wept aloud. Did we deserve this from the gods, I cried, to be united only in death? No, malignant fortune grudges even that. Look, in an instant the waves will capsize the ship. Think, in an instant the sea will sever this lover's embrace. If you ever loved Encolpius truly, kiss him while yet you may, and snatch this last delight from impending dissolution. Even as I was speaking, Giton removed his garment, and, creeping beneath my tunic, he stuck out his head to be kissed. Then, fearing some more spiteful wave might separate us as we clung together, he passed his belt around us both. If nothing else, he cried, the sea will at least bear us longer, joined together, and if, in pity, it casts us up upon the same shore, some passerby might pile some stones over us, out of the common human kindness, or the last rites will be performed by the drifting sand, in spite of the angry waves. I submit to this last bond, and, as though I were laid out upon my deathbed, await an end no longer dreaded. Meanwhile, accomplishing the decrees of the fates, the storm stripped the ship of all that was left. No mast, no helm, not a rope, nor an oar remained on board her. She was only a derelict, heavy and waterlogged, drifting before the waves. Some fishermen hastily put off in their little boats to salvage the booty, but, seeing men alive and ready to defend their property, they changed their predatory designs into offers of help. Chapter the 115th Just then, amid that clamor of voices, we heard a peculiar noise, and from beneath the captain's cabin there came a bellowing as of some wild beast trying to get out. We then followed up the sound, and discovered Eumolpus sitting there scribbling verses upon an immense sheet of parchment, astounded that he could find time to write poetry at death's very door. We hauled him out, in spite of his protests, and ordered him to return to his senses, but he flew into a rage at being interrupted. Leave me alone until I finish the sentence, he bawled. The poem labors to its birth, ordering Giton to close quarters, and help me drag the bellowing bard ashore. I laid hands upon the lunatic. When this job had at last been completed, we came, wet and wretched, to a fisherman's hut, and refreshed ourselves, somewhat with stores, from the wreck, spoiled though they were, by salt water, and passed a night that was almost interminable. As we were holding a council next day, to determine to what part of the country we had best proceed, I suddenly caught a sight of a human body, turning around in a gentle eddy and floating towards the shore. Stricken with melancholy, I stood still and began to brood, with wet eyes, upon the treachery of the sea. And perhaps, said I, a wife, safe in some far-away country of the earth, awaits this man, or a son who little dreams of storms or wrecks, or perhaps he left behind a father whom he kissed good-bye at parting. Such is the end of mortals' plans, such is the outcome of great ambitions. See how man rides the waves. Until now I had been sorrowing for a mere stranger, but a wave turned the face, which had undergone no change, towards the shore, and I recognized Lucas, so evil-tempered and so unrelenting but a short time before, now cast up almost at my feet. I could no longer restrain the tears at this. I beat my breast again and yet again, with my hands. Where is your evil temper now? I cried. Where is your unbridled passion? You be there, a prey to fish and wild beasts, you who boasted but a little while ago of the strength of your command. Now you have not a single plank left of your great ship. 
Go on, mortals, set your hearts upon the fulfillment of great ambitions. Go on, schemers, and in your wills control for a thousand years the disposal of the wealth you got by fraud. Only yesterday this man audited the accounts of his family estate, yea, even reckoned the day he would arrive in his native land and settled it in his mind. Gods and goddesses, how far he lies from his appointed destination. But the waves of the sea are not alone in thus keeping faith with mortal men. The warrior's weapons fail him. The citizen is buried beneath the ruins of his own penates. When engaged in praying to his vows to the gods, another falls from his chariot and dashes out his ardent spirit. The glutton chokes at dinner. The niggard starves from abstinence. Give the dice a fair throw and you will find shipwreck everywhere. Ah, but one overwhelmed by the waves obtains no burial, as though it matters in what manner the body, once it is dead, is consumed, by fire, by flood, by time. Do what you will, these all achieve the same end. Ah, but the beasts will mangle the body, as though fire would deal with it any more gently. When we are angry with our slaves, that is the punishment which we consider the most severe. What folly it is, then, to do everything we can to prevent the grave from leaving any part of us behind, when the fates will look out for us, even against our wills. After these reflections, we made ready to pay the last rites to the corpse, and Lucas was burned upon a funeral pyre raised by the hands of enemies, while Eumolpus, fixing his eyes upon the far distance to gain inspiration, composed an epitaph for the dead man. His fate was unavoidable, no rock-hewn tomb, nor sculptured marble his. His noble corpse five feet of earth received, he rests in peace beneath this humble mound. Chapter the 116th we set out upon our intended journey after this last office had been wholeheartedly performed, and in a little while arrived, sweating at the top of a mountain, from which we made out no great distance, a town perched upon the summit of a lofty eminence. Wanderers as we were, we had no idea what town it could be, until we learned from a caretaker that it was Crotona, a very ancient city and once the first in Italy. When we earnestly inquired upon learning this, what men inhabited such historic grounds, and the nature of the business in which they were principally engaged, now that their wealth had been dissipated by the oft-recurring roars, My friends, replied he, if you are men of business, change your plans and seek out some other conservative road to a livelihood. But if you can play the part of men of great culture, always ready with a lie, you are on the straight road to riches. The study of literature is held in no estimation in that city. Eloquence has no niche there. Economy and decent standards of morality come into no reward of honor there. You must know that every man whom you will meet in that city belongs to one of two factions. They either take in, or else they are taken in. No one brings up children in that city, for the reason that no one who has heirs is invited to dinner or admitted to the games. Such an one is deprived of all enjoyments and must lurk with the rabble. On the other hand, those who have never married a wife or those who have no near relatives attain to the very highest honors. In other words, they are the only ones who are considered soldierly, or the bravest of the brave, or even good. You will see a town which resembles the fields in time of pestilence, he continued, in which there is nothing but carcasses to be torn out and carry on crows tearing at them. End of section 15